She arrived to deliver the dresses, but she was told by the front door staff that she would have to enter through the back door. At that point, she actually threatened to take the dresses back if forced to enter through the back door, so of course the staff complied. My name is CJ, and welcome to Black in Fashion, a podcast that highlights key Black figures who have impacted the world of fashion as we know it today, as well as those who continue to influence its ever-changing industry. Each episode, we'll profile different people from past to present, as well as conduct interviews and engage in dialogue around race and diversity within the fashion industry. Royal weddings are often associated with Great Britain and the royal family. The United States, however, has had its fair share of highly celebrated wedding ceremonies. One particular memorable ceremony was that of former President John F. Kennedy and Jacqueline Lee Bouvier. The ceremony was in September of 1953 and had over 700 attendees, not including the thousands of fans and press outside the ceremony. Jackie O's wedding dress is considered one of the best-remembered gowns of all time. It was ivory-covered silk taffeta with a portrait neckline and a bouffant skirt decorated with interwoven bands of tucking and tiny wax flowers. Today, it's part of the permanent collection at the JFK Presidential Library and Museum and continues to be a source of inspiration for so many designers and future brides. Now, when we think of royal weddings, or weddings in general, people are always curious to know who designed the bride's gown. I remember there being a huge buzz about who would design Meghan Markle's wedding dress. Now, it ended up being Claire Waite Keller of Givenchy, but everyone knows how important the designer's name is to any huge event where the fashion spectators are present. So when Jacqueline Kennedy, who was known as a style icon during her trajectory, was asked by the Washington Post who designed her wedding dress, she replied, a colored woman. That colored woman wasn't given credit for the dress design, and it would take many years until she did. She was known as society's best-kept secret and was a dressmaker whose client books included names like the Rockefellers, DuPonts, and the Roosevelts. This woman was iconic in her own right, but rarely received the recognition she deserved at the height of her career. The first time I heard of this person was when I was visiting the Smithsonian Museum of African American Culture in D.C. a few years ago, and I wondered why I had never heard of this designer. This designer, who we now know today as Anne Lowe. Anne Lowe was born in Clayton, Alabama in 1898. She was a great-granddaughter of a slave and plantation owner, so slavery was not far removed from the South during her upbringing. Her mother and grandmother were both skilled seamstresses who worked for members of high society, so she learned at a very young age. Aside from her upbringing around seamstresses, she was also very talented in sewing and dressmaking and had an early passion for design. She married and had her son at age 14. I think that was more socially acceptable at the time. But her husband also wanted her to give up being a seamstress at one point, and that obviously didn't happen, so she ended up leaving him years later to continue her career. Now, Lowe's mother died when she was only 16 years old. At the time of her death, her mother was working on four ball gowns for Elizabeth Kirkman O'Neill, who was the first lady of Alabama's 34th governor, Emmett O'Neill. Now, despite this early tragedy, Lowe utilized her skill set she learned from her mother and grandmother and completed all the ball gowns. The fact that she was able to finish those gowns during a tough period for her family shows how dedicated Lowe was to her craft from an early age. This sort of passion and perseverance would be her main driver throughout her career. 
1917, Lowe was 19 when she moved to New York with her son to attend S.T. Taylor Design School to get more formal training in dressmaking. Now, that school was kind of hard to find, but I was able to find it after searching the U.S. Bureau of Education report from 1911. Its full name was S.T. Taylor Company Dressmaking School, and it was a trade school specifically focused on dressmaking, obviously. So I'm pretty sure it's no longer around. But remember, we're also in the early 20th century, so segregation was very prominent in most places. This particular school, for example, was also very segregated. So Anne Lowe was forced to take classes separate from her peers because her peers allegedly didn't want to study alongside a Negro. Now, I'm not sure where I read this, but I wouldn't be surprised. Like, it wouldn't be very surprising considering the times, but I'm not sure how that will work exactly. So I'm not sure if the teacher would go back and forth and teach them in different rooms or if Lowe just sat separately, like, from the rest of the class. But either way, her work was still very exceptional during her time at the design school, and it was often used as examples despite her being alienated from the rest of her classmates, which again, wouldn't be surprising considering her skill set even before going to school. So Lowe graduated two years later and moved to Tampa where she opened up her first dress salon called Annie Cohen, which catered to an upper class, high society clientele. Now, this would be an ongoing theme with Ann Lowe. She was very clear and particular about who she designed for, high society, the upper echelon, or the social register, as Lowe stated in an interview with Ebony Magazine. The full quote from that 1966 interview stated, I love my clothes, and I'm particular about who wears them. I'm not interested in sewing for social climbers. I do not cater to Mary and Sue. I sew for the families of the social register. Now, she stayed in Tampa long enough to save about $20,000 from her successful salon business. So with this saving, she moved back to New York City in hopes of taking her business to the next level. By this point, it's 1928, and she's in her 30s. In New York City, she did design work for Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, and Henry Bendel. She also worked on her own designs, but throughout her time in New York City, she continued designing for high-profile clients. While designing for these high-profile clients, she didn't always get the credit that she deserved. For example, she designed a gown for actress Olivia de Havilland, who wore the dress to accept an Academy Award for Best Actress in 1946. But Lowe created the dress under the name Sonia Rosenberg. Because she wasn't getting much credit, she opened up a second salon in Harlem called Annie Lowe's Gowns in 1950, which was an immediate success. I'm not sure when the Tampa salon closed, but I assumed it closed soon after she left Tampa. So this would be her second salon. Three years after opening the Harlem salon, Lowe was hired to design Jackie Kennedy's famous wedding dress I talked about at the beginning of the episode. She was actually hired to create the wedding dress and the bridal party's gowns. So of course, this was a huge client, especially with JFK rising in political prominence. The dresses altogether took about two months to make. Now, I'm pretty sure that she had like a staff of seamstresses, but still only eight to 10 full weeks to make all these gowns. Now, here's where things start to get crazy. 10 days before the wedding ceremony, Anne Lowe's studio was flooded and every single dress was ruined. Because of this, that dress you saw in the photos from different media outlets had to be recreated in less than two weeks. Yes, you heard me correctly. Jackie Kennedy's wedding dress had to be recreated in less than two weeks, barely a week. 
So imagine condensing two months worth of work into about 10 days. I mean, it's kind of like studying for finals, but this moment was literally make or break for her career. So her and her team worked nonstop for eight days straight in order to get every single gown remade. I doubt they slept. Luckily, they were able to finish the dresses and get the gowns to the ceremony. Now, the other crazy thing is when she finally arrived in Newport, Rhode Island, where the ceremony was held, she arrived to deliver the dresses, but she was told by the front door staff that she would have to enter through the back door. So can you imagine putting in all that work, probably restless, hungry, exhausted, just for someone to tell you to enter through the back if you want to deliver the final product? At that point, she actually threatened to take the dresses back if forced to enter through the back door. So, of course, the staff complied and the wedding was a success and you never would have known what it took to put everything together. The sad thing about this entire ordeal is that the dresses were severely underpriced, which I believe was a common practice for Lowe. Although she opened multiple businesses, she barely made enough to even break even most of the time. Now, earlier, I did say her businesses were a success. So based off all of this research, it seems like she earned enough to break even and save little by little, you know, with each going month. But from my understanding, even at the height of her career, she was struggling financially. But we're going to talk more about that later on in the episode. In this instance, with the wedding dresses, she hadn't charged nearly enough for the expensive fabric, details, or finish, which actually resulted in a loss of over $2,000 for making all of these gowns. I mean, I'm pretty sure the flood played a huge role as well. But even so, if she had gotten the credit for creating these gowns, her story may have had a happier ending. Jackie crediting her in the first place would have surely made up for the lost and then some because her business would have been booming with clients, especially those who ran in similar social circles, admired the Kennedys and the memorable gown. Unfortunately, that was not the case and Ann Lowe would not receive credit for the dress until many years later. Now, our story doesn't end there. In 1964, Saturday Evening Post article dubbed Lowe's Society's Best Kept Secret, where she seemed to finally get credit for creating Jackie O's wedding dress. Now, in 1968, she opened up Ann Lowe's Original, which would be her third salon or boutique. Now, I believe the other two had already closed at this point, but Ann Lowe's Originals was particularly special because it opened on Madison Avenue, making it the first black business owner on this famous strip of luxury retail. Now, as we stated before, Ann Lowe faced a lot of financial hardships throughout her career and nearly went bankrupt at one point. Luckily, an anonymous donor who was actually rumored to be Jackie Kennedy helped pay off her debts and she continued working at her Madison Avenue location up until her retirement in 1972 at age 74. She died on February 25th, 1981 at age 82. So when thinking about the legacy she left behind, Anne Lowe was the first black designer to have a boutique on Madison Avenue and designed one of the most iconic wedding dresses in American history. She also designed exquisite gowns for the social elite, so first ladies, the wives of millionaires, and even actresses. Her talent as a designer was undeniable, but she was almost never credited for these designs. Despite her accomplishments in press, being known as society's best-kept secret wasn't necessarily a good thing. Her identity as a colored woman played a huge role in shielding her true potential and hindered financial success throughout her career. Between clients not wanting to share her true identity while talking her out of charging hundreds and thousands of dollars for her work, she was virtually broke at the height of her career. 
I found a quote from a New York Times article announcing her death in 1981. According to the article, she charged what was then a lot of money for a dress, but her clients were sometimes able to talk down her prices so that after paying her seamstresses, she often lost money. Now let's think about this for a second. On one end, she was able to build and maintain a loyal clientele who knew the quality of her work could rival any European couturier. These clients worked with Anne Lowe for generations, but did this knowing she could deliver the same quality while severely undercharging them. This likely led to her being taken advantage of by some of those clients who weren't exactly bragging about having their dress created by a black designer. Remember, she even had to use an alias for some of her pieces, so we know it was a priority to keep Anne Lowe as society's quote-unquote best-kept secret. Truth be told, it was unfair to her talent and potential as a designer. Nevertheless, she never lost her passion for the craft, and she's regained some of the recognition she deserved during her lifetime. Anne Lowe's work can be found at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., like I said earlier, as well as the JFK Museum in Boston. The Costume Institute at the Met houses some of her pieces, and there were a few pieces included in a 2016 exhibition at the museum at FIT, or the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. There's also Something to Prove, a biography of Anne Lowe, America's Forgotten Designer, by Julia Frey Dockery Smith, if you want to check out more information or just read on your own. Although her story is still known by few, Anne Lowe continues to inspire by showing that one's true passion and gift can build an everlasting legacy. Black in Fashion is written and produced by me, edited by Joelle North. The theme music is from PBTM Production Music Library, and background music for our profile episodes comes from Lakey Inspired. The title is Better Days. Please like, subscribe, review, and rate Black in Fashion five stars on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Lastly, follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at B-L-K-N-F-S-H-N. Again, that's at B-L-K-N-F-S-H-N, just like the logo. Thanks for listening.